Good morning, church. It is so great to be with you. My name is Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here. So glad that you're a part of it. We are concluding a month-long family meeting where we've been talking about what is our family going to be like moving forward? What kind of a community will this be? How do we live out those things that we talk about, what we believe all year long? And uh, I don't know how family meetings go in your home. I don't know if you've had a family meeting, but uh, we're in the process of one in our house right now, just to let you know. Uh, so I have a lot of practice with this. You see, we've had our, our dog, Chloe, for about 14 years now. And this is what our dog looks like. Aww. Only in Portland do you get that reaction. Aww. <laughs> uh, so this is our dog, Chloe. And we've had our dog longer than we've had kids. So all our kids know is Chloe. Like, they don't know life without Chloe. Uh, and so that's just the, the norm for them. But Chloe's getting older, you know. And uh, if you've had a dog age, Chloe doesn't hear real well anymore. And uh, there's a number of things that are starting to shut down in her body. And, and so we're like, all right. And, and you know, we're, we're kind of delaying the inevitable. We know it's coming. But the other day, my wife Michelle took her to the, to, to the vet to get her, her update on a rabies shot. And uh, so she gets the shot. And then Michelle just, you know, nonchalantly asks, like, hey, like, when should I be thinking about getting the next one? And the vet, without skipping a beat, goes, oh, this is the last one she'll need. Right? When your vet says that to you, you're like, whoa. Okay. I mean, maybe like one more, right? She's like, no, 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 this is it. She'll be fine. Like, that's all, that's all you need. And so I was like, okay. And so Michelle and I, we got we to gotta start prepping our kids for this because it's coming at some point. And so it's, it's a hard conversation to get in your kids. You're like, hey, guys, I know that, you know, all you've ever known is life with Chloe, but there's going to come a day where Chloe won't be around anymore and we won't have a dog. And, you know, we got to talk about that. And, and our kids weren't really fully understanding where we were going with it. And so we're trying to softly kind of break this to them. And, and we're like, no, like, Chloe's getting old, you know, and so she'll die. And then we won't, we won't have a dog. And then, you know, we'll have to figure out from that point on. And, and, and one of our kids just, uh, just really, you know, really perplexed trying to figure this out asked us a question uh, that, to be honest, we had not thought through. Uh, and his question was, he looked perplexed and he goes, well, what if Chloe lays an egg? <laughs> Hadn't thought of that. Uh, yeah, you got me there. That would make things interesting. That's spice things up in our house a little bit. Uh, yeah, so the other day I'm like, son, let me attempt to explain why that's not going to happen. And I didn't know, like, you know, when you're trying to explain things to a kid, sometimes you're trying to figure like, what's the best route to go here? And, and so I, I begin to explain, Chloe's not going to lay an egg. That's not going to happen. And, and he goes, I know why, Dad. I said, you do know why? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, because she'd have to find a boy dog and get married first. <laughs> yeah, let's go with that. That's, that's the reason why <laughs> Chloe won't lay an egg. So that was, that was our kids' response to this conversation. I don't know what your response has been to our family meeting this entire month, but I just got to tell you, I am so proud to be your pastor, to watch how you guys as a community have rallied around uh, this, this new vision of what God is directing us to move forward. It is truly remarkable. Last week we talked about uh, rethinking membership and said, hey, we're not going to do membership the way, you know, it's kind of formally been thought of, but we're going to invite our family to serve our guests. And then we said, here's the way the family's going to behave here. Here's what we invite you to do. And we gave you a card last week if you were here. And I just asked, hey, if, if one of these things on this card, you're going, hey, I'm not currently doing that, but I want to get more involved in serving our guests as part of the family, would you turn the card in and we can follow up with you on next steps for that? I had no idea how many cards we're going to get. We got about 500 cards turned in last week. Yes, you can applaud that. I'm so grateful for the way you guys are responding and going, 
We want to be a part of a community that gets this, that is a different kind of a family, and it is truly remarkable. And so today, we're going to land this plane of where we've been. If you've got your journals, you've been holding on to these, we are in week four. Uh, we encourage you to take notes each and every week, you'll see a spot in your journal there. If you don't have a journal, uh, I encourage you to take notes of something. Uh, we're going to give you a number of things today that I think would be helpful for you to write down uh, as you're processing through where are we going from here, what kind of a church is this going to be? Then in our Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7. So if you get your Bibles out, we're going to Matthew 7. And I'm going to show you a passage there in just a moment. Hopefully you brought a physical Bible with you. Uh, and you can mark in that Bible. Or if you've got a Bible app on a phone, that would be awesome. We'd love for you to read this for yourself and see how God's word applies. Now, we've been in this series rolling out this vision statement of this is where we're going. And we're talking about giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others. And if you've been with us in the series, we've nuanced this and explained what does it mean for it to be good news? What does it mean for it to be bad news? How do we give ourselves to it? Last week I talked about who are these others, right? Like, like who are the others? And, and really looking at this idea of who is our neighbor and how do we, how do we uh, learn how to think about that? And, and so today what I want to talk about is once we figure out who the others are, how do we treat them? How do we treat people around us? If, if we understand that, that Jesus has called us to something radical, how should we be treating the people that we are called to love? And, and what does that look like? And so if you're with me in Matthew chapter 7, I want to invite you to go to, to verse 12. And in verse 12, we're going to see a verse, and if you don't have this highlighted or circled, this is a great verse to mark up in your Bible. Uh, it's a famous verse. It's so famous that even if you haven't read the Bible, and even if you're not really a churchgoer, you probably have heard of this. Uh, it's that well known. And yet, I want to explore why is it so profound. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, Jesus says this. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Now, if you have a physical Bible with you, I want you just to note uh, how it feels in your lap right now. Because if you're in Matthew chapter 7, you're in the first book in the New Testament, okay? So everything to the right of where you are is the New Testament, right? And, and notice the size of that. And then look to the left of it, and that's the Old Testament. And note the size of that. And if you have a physical Bible, you realize the Old Testament is huge. It's ginormous, right? It's way, way bigger than the New Testament. And here's what's so profound. When Jesus says, this sums up. The law and the prophets to us were like, well, what does that mean? What's he referencing? Essentially, uh, you could say Jesus saying, this sums up the Old Testament. All that came before, the law and the prophets and all of that can be summed up in this simple statement. You're like, whoa. You just, like, that's a Reader's Digest version on steroids. Like, you took the entire Old Testament, boiled it down into one expression. That's Remarkable. That's why, again, if you've got a Bible, it's a good verse to notate. But here's what you may not know. Jesus wasn't the first guy to say this. Now, again, uh, it's easy at some time we kind of talk about Jesus as if he was like this legendary person and, and he almost ceases to become a real person. Jesus lived at a real point in history, in a real place. And so there's literally time when he was alive. Well, there's also people that came before Jesus uh, in, in you know, his earthly life. And, and so you can trace what was said Prior to that, let me show you three different people who said something similar before Jesus was on the scene saying what he said. Okay, I'll begin with Confucius. Don't normally hear Confucius quoted in church. Uh, Confucius, born 551 BC. He said, do not do to others what you would not want others to do to you. Okay, about 500 years before Jesus, this idea is out there. And, and again, you can know, oh, that's very similar to what Jesus said. 
fast forward a little bit, you get to a Greek philosopher, Herodotus. He said, I will not myself do that which I consider to be blameworthy in my neighbor. Okay, same idea, uh, just, you know, updated a little bit. Fast forward a few hundred years, you get to a famous rabbi named Hillel. And this is about 100 years before Jesus said, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. Now again, you're seeing this is like a, a, a stream of thought through hundreds of years that in different cultures is getting said. This idea was already out there. And for some of you, you might be going, oh, I thought like Jesus said that. Like that was like a really cool thing. And then now you read history and you're like, oh, what a bummer. But here's what's remarkable. I want you to stare at these three statements. And again, this covers different cultures throughout hundreds of years of time. Then you get to Jesus. Now I want you to notice how Jesus' version is actually quite a bit different than these versions. Okay? Here's what Jesus says. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Jesus is the only one that says the statement in the affirmative. Everybody else talks about things that you don't do. Jesus goes, yeah, 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 that's great. But it doesn't stop there. Yeah, so it's great. Like step one in figuring out how to treat others is don't hurt them. Like that's a great beginning point. But if that's the extent of how you're going to love people, you've got a very shallow love. I'm not going to hurt you. That's how much I love you, right? Like that's not a great form of love. But that's, that was the idea of the day. Jesus takes it and goes, no, no, no. Let's go way beyond that. Not only don't hurt people, but do positive things for them. Do the things for them that you wish somebody would do for you. And now you're going, whoa, that's way different, Jesus. That's a, that's a lot more that you are adding to it. And this is how you begin to understand how Jesus thought of love. Because love is, is not just, oh, I, I love you. It's not just this word. Love is, is the action behind it. And if the problem is, most love today, what gets passed as love, is really the, the avoidance of hurt. Hey, I'm just not going to harm you. I'm not going to hurt you. But, oh, it's love. Jesus goes, no, I, I envision something else. What if we were proactively doing for others what we wish they would do for us? That kind of a love is radically different. Now, there's an organization called The Bible Project, actually located in Portland. Uh, and they take a lot of biblical concepts and they put it to video. And so uh, there's a lot I want to explain. It would take me like 20 minutes to explain it. Or I can show you this video that's a few minutes long. Uh, and it will cover a lot. And so I want to show you this video that unpacks the statement we just read and explains how this is really tied into Jesus' view of love. Check this out. So if you've heard of Jesus, you probably know about one of his famous teachings called the Golden Rule. Do to others what you would want them to do to you. And this, actually, is a restatement of something else that Jesus said, that the meaning of life is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's really beautiful, but what does he mean exactly by the word love? It's an unclear word in English, because you can love your mom and you can love pizza. And if the word love means the same thing in both of those cases, your mom's going to feel real bad. So what did Jesus mean in his language? Well, first of all, this love your neighbor phrase is a quotation from the Hebrew scriptures, where the word for love is ahava. However, the language Jesus spoke and taught in from day to day it was a cousin language of Hebrew, that is Aramaic, in which the word for love is rachmah. But then, as Jesus' followers spread his teachings around the world, they translated them into Greek using the word agape. 
But here's what's fascinating. The earliest followers of Jesus who wrote the books of the New Testament in Greek, they didn't learn the meaning of agape by looking it up in ancient dictionaries. Rather, they looked to the teachings of Jesus and the story of his life to redefine their very concept of love. So one time, Jesus was asked about the most important command in the Jewish scriptures. And he first quoted from the ancient prayer in the Torah called the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. So love for God is the most important thing. But then Jesus quickly followed up by saying another command from the Torah was also the most important, to love your neighbor as yourself. So which is the most important, loving God or loving your neighbor? Jesus' answer is yes. To ask the question means you don't get his point. For Jesus, they are two sides of the same coin. Your love for God will be expressed by your love for people and vice versa, they're inseparable. And so this makes it clear that for Jesus, agape love is not primarily a feeling for someone else that happens to you, like our phrase, I fell in love. For Jesus, love is action. It's a choice that you make to seek the well-being of people other than yourself. Jesus also went on to teach that genuine love for God and others means seeking people's well-being without expecting anything in return, especially from people who are in difficult situations who can't repay you even if they wanted to. According to Jesus, this kind of generous love reflects the very heartbeat of God. And he took this even further. Jesus said that the ultimate standard of authentic love is how well you treat the person that you can't stand. Or in his words, you shall love your enemy and do good to them, expecting nothing in return. For Jesus, this kind of enemy-embracing love imitates the very character of God himself. Now, we wouldn't be talking about Jesus still today if he had only said things like love your enemy. This is how he actually lived. Jesus was constantly helping and serving the people around him in very practical and tangible ways. And he consistently moved towards poor and hurting people who couldn't benefit him in return. He showed love for the forgotten ones, the people who usually fall through the cracks. And when Jesus eventually marched into Jerusalem, he made himself an enemy of the leaders of his people by accusing them of hypocrisy and corruption. But then instead of attacking his enemies to overthrow them, he allowed them to kill him. Jesus died for the selfishness and corruption of his enemies because he loved them. After Easter morning, Jesus and then his followers claimed that it was the power of God's love for the world that was revealed in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. As the Apostle Paul put it, God demonstrated his own agape for us in this. While we were still sinners, the Messiah died for us. Or in the words of the Apostle John, God's own agape was revealed when he sent his one and only son into the world so that through him we could have life. And for John, then, this leads naturally to the conclusion, beloved ones, if that's how God has loved us, then we ought to show love for one another. So Christian faith involves trusting that at the center of the universe is a being overflowing with love for his world, which means that the purpose of human existence is to receive this love that has come to us in Jesus and then to give it back out to others, creating an ecosystem of others-focused, self-giving love. And that's the New Testament meaning of agape love. So love is more than just something we express, right? I, I, I love that person. And it's easy to talk about love. It's much harder to do. And so as we think about, hey, with this mission statement and this, you know, this really direction we're going as a church, how do we know how to do this? Here's what I've come to the conclusion is that the gospel will cost you something. 
Now, oftentimes when we express this, we think, oh, I've got to earn my way to God. I've got to do something. No, 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 no. There's nothing you can do. Uh, the, the, the gospel in that sense is an absolute free gift. But the moment you accept that free gift and you go, oh, I, I've, been, I've been changed by this, then you go, I want to live this out for others. I want others to experience what I have. You begin to replicate what Jesus has done for us. And the gospel costs Jesus something. And so when it costs him something to express that love, when we imitate him, we have to understand it will cost us something to love others this way. And so if you go, well, I don't want it to cost me anything, or I'm not paying any price for it, then what you realize is you're not fully experiencing the love. See, a lot of times Christians go, okay, here, here's like the sideline. Uh, that's the game being played. I'll stand over here on the sideline and I'll talk about how I love God and how I love people, but I can do that very passively. And I can do that by not hurting them and kind of doing what all the writers before Jesus had talked about with the golden rule. Like, I just won't do to others what I don't want them to do to me. But then Jesus says, no, no, I want you to proactively treat people in a different kind of way. I want you to do something for them. That requires you to move from the sidelines into the game. And now you're moving into the game going, what will I do for you? How will I express proactively this love that I have for you? Now here's the reality. Uh, it's easy for us to go, oh, of course I'm doing that. I I'm totally doing that. How do you know if you're on the sidelines loving or if you're actively engaging yourself in love? How, how do you know which version you're doing? Here's the easiest test that I have found, and it mentioned it in this video. It's how you love those you disagree with. It's how you love those who are different than you. Because you can say, well, look how, look how much I love this friend of mine or this family member of mine. You know, like, well, yeah, but if they're like you and they're close to you, then of course you love them. How do you love that person that you don't see eye to eye on and maybe it's hard for you to be around? How do you express your love to them? That really is the test. And I would ask this question. Have, have you ever seen in your lifetime a time when we collectively as a culture disagreed with one another more than we do right now? I just look around and go, we are getting more and more polarized by the day. And so we began to ask this question, if that's the, the trend our culture is going to polarize, to go, hey, let's, let's alienate ourselves from those we disagree with, how could we as a church live out this others-focused love? And we realized it came down to what we believe. But not just what we believe, how we live it out. So here's the deal. As a church, as we uh, prayed about this and our elders met about this, we decided we're going to get really clear on what do we deem the essentials of our faith. And we're going to lock arms as a family around these essentials. These are what we would say, these statements are Christianity. If you believe these statements, we would say this is what Christianity means. But we're going to give immense amounts of grace on everything else on all the other issues that normally divide people. We're going to say, look, we're not going to fight over that. We're not going to disagree on that. We're going to provide an environment of grace. And so to do this, we have to put in the hard work to go, what are those essentials that we're going to rally around? And so if you want to write things down, this is a great thing for you to write down. We give you eight different statements that we go, this is what we believe as a church. If you want to know, like, what is this church really about? I'm about to give you eight statements that theologically are the foundation of what we believe. But what you're going to realize is everything not included here is going to be an area where we give grace for disagreement, for, for other people to understand it in different ways. And so here's the list that I would give you. And again, uh, this is also on the website. So if you're like, hey, I can't write that fast, uh, you can go online anytime. You can go to the What We Believe page and you can find out all of these on the website. 
So here's what we would say. We affirm the essential beliefs of the church. Basically, we're saying as we see the church historically, what has the church throughout generations, throughout different cultures, what have been the hallmarks of Christianity? That's what we're going to hold to today. And so here's the list. Number one, we believe in the inspiration and authority of Scripture. Okay, we believe that the Bible is inspired, that it has authority in our life. Now, if you're a Christian here and you've been a Christian for a long time, you might have a question that a guest doesn't have. You might go, well, how is it inspired? You see, as long as we've been alive, uh, as long as the Bible's been in existence, Christians have debated the nature of how did the inspiration work? How did God do it? How is it authoritative? And, and Christians have literally argued over this for generations. And what we decided is we're not going to argue over that. If you can agree with us that the Bible's inspired, that it has authority, then we're going to say, great, let's move on from there. And, and you might go, well, yeah, but I think it's inspired this way, and you think it's inspired that way. And we'd say, yeah, that's great. Do you think it's inspired? Because that's what we think is the most important part of this, not how you think it is inspired. inspired. Next one. Uh, we believe in the triune nature of God. This is what the, the scriptures, you know, refer to as the Trinity. Uh, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now again, the Trinity, you can spend your whole life studying the Trinity, and you still won't make sense out of it. It is so unbelievably complex and profound, and yet that's how we see God in Scripture, that He exists in all of, of these forms, and that if you negate any of those, you get a different picture of God. And so we're going to go, look, uh, you don't have to be able to explain the Trinity uh, to everybody, but as long as you acknowledge, like, that's how God exists, as Father, Son, and Spirit, that's what we would say is, is the core. Next one. We believe in the deity, the humanity, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Basically, he was fully God, he was fully human, and he died and literally rose again. And that to miss any part of that, you, you do not have Christianity anymore. That you can't say, well, I don't, I don't fully agree with that. We would say you have to believe to understand he's fully God. He is also fully human. Both of those are true and they're hard to make sense out of. And he died and was literally resurrected. And again, we we're going to say that is a core belief that we hold to. The next one. We believe in the creation of the world, particularly that God created the world. Now again, how did he do it? Was it literal six days, figurative, metaphorical? What, how, as long as you can agree with us that God did it, you're welcome to come up with your own theory on, on how. Here's the deal. None of us were there. Guys, I don't know how to break that to you. Like we get so confident. I know exactly how it works. You don't. You weren't there. You got a theory. All right, that's great. But we're not going to divide amongst ourselves over this. We're going to say, what's the most important part? Is that you believe God created it. That this is not an accident. This is not just, woof, we all appear. Isn't that amazing? No, that God is behind this. However, he did it. And so we think the creation of the world from that point of view is what's most important. The next one. We believe in the fall of humanity. That in the opening pages of scripture, you find this story of, of brokenness. That, that God had created something, but then because of sin, there was this issue to be resolved. And that issue creates a fundamental problem for each and every person who has ever lived. And it, it starts in the opening pages of scripture, and it continues in our lives today as we wrestle with sin and go, what do we do about this sin issue? So therefore, the next one, we believe in the need for salvation in Jesus alone. Okay? There is no other name by which you're going to be saved. We believe it's all through the name of Jesus Christ. That there is a, there is a brokenness issue. And the way we, we deal with it is that we have salvation through Jesus Christ. The next one. We believe in the return of Jesus. How? I don't know. Probably not the way the Left Behind books talk about it. Right? I'm just going to throw that out there if you're like, I know exactly. I read those books. 
Probably not, all right? Um, but we believe Jesus coming back. I don't know how he's going to do it. I can have some theories, but I don't know. I, I, we're going to find out when it happens, right? We believe that Jesus coming back. We believe that's the important part, that you don't think that God has just abandoned his creation, that he's just like, hope you guys figure it out. No, he's coming back, and there will be this point when he begins to redeem everything, which leads us to the final one. We believe in God's ultimate victory over evil, that we know the ending of the story. That even though things may look dark, even though things may look overwhelming, that ultimately there will come a day when God will redeem all his creation back to himself. And it will be a beautiful moment and evil will not have the last laugh. Evil will not have the last moment. Absolutely, you can applaud that. Now here's the deal. That's it. That's our list of essentials as the leadership of this church that we have decided as we move forward. That is where we are locking arms. We're going to say, if you want to really be a part of the family with us, that's our creed. That's what we go. This is what we believe. Now, here's the reality. I get emails all the time. What's the church's stance on fill in the blank? And it's almost always something not on this list. Right? What's the church's stance on this or that or that? And, and, and I don't know why I get this question all the time and why we ask this question all the time. Here's what I suspect. That we want to be a part of a church that whatever you, those other uh, you know, opinions you have, those theologies that you have, you go, I want to make sure that my church and my pastors agree with me on this. I think that's where that question comes from. What's the, what's the church's stance on? Because I've got to figure out if I can be a part of this church. I, I need to know your stance on this. And, and here's the reality, okay, and this is important. Um, if you go to a church where everybody agrees with everyone, where you agree 100% with everything the pastor says, guess what? You're in a cult. <laughs> I don't know if you know that. That's, that's literally the definition of a cult, okay? Don't drink the Kool-Aid, all right? I'm telling you. That's a cult. That's not the church. The church is not where we go, isn't it amazing that we all agree on everything? No, we don't agree on everything. The church is where we say, hey, isn't it amazing that we agree on the essentials of who Jesus is and what God is doing as revealed in Scripture? And we lock arms around that in the midst of all the other differences that we have. So here's what this means in real time. Okay, this is where it gets good. You can have an opinion on any other thing that's not on this list. And if I share an opinion, because here's the deal. The longer you're around here, you'll start to learn my opinions on things that are not on this list. Like, there's lots of things I have opinions on. But here's the thing, and you may never have heard this in church before. You are welcome on anything not on this list. You are welcome to disagree with me. Let that just sink in, okay? You are welcome to disagree with me on anything not on that list. And you go, hey, that's how he sees it. I see it differently. Because look around you right now. I promise you, if you could get into some theology with the people around you, you don't all agree with one another. So you are welcome to disagree with those around you. And here's the best part. I am able to disagree with you. <laughs> so you can come to me and go, Pastor, I believe so profoundly about this. That's amazing. Uh, I don't see it that way. And here's the deal. You don't have to email me when you don't like something that I said. If it's not on that list, great. God bless you. Glad you're here. Save yourself the effort. You don't need to do that, all right? And we get so worked up. No, we all got to agree. No, we don't. We're not building a cult here. We're building the church. And so we are going to allow a number of different perspectives and voices and experiences to shape that. And we're going to learn and grow from one 
another. And that is what I think the church is. Now, when I was younger, I was raised in the church, okay? I was, my dad's a pastor. I had this as long as I can remember. When I was younger, my list of essentials was so much longer than it is today. I mean, I had tons of things that if, like, you don't agree with me on this, you are clearly not a Christian. And as I got older, and as I studied more and hopefully matured quite a bit in my faith, God began to show me, look, there's lots of important things that are non-essential things. Okay? So just because something's not on the essential, it doesn't mean it's not important to, to think through and to study and to grow in. It just means that you and I could disagree on it, and we can both go, yeah, we're Christians together. And we, we see this one differently. And there are so many amazing things that are worth discussing and investing ourselves in and diving into deeper and going, oh, how do you understand this? But they're not essential things. And so we can disagree. We can go, great, we're going to lock arms around the things that we know together. And I would suggest to you that as you mature in your faith, your list of essentials should get smaller. It shouldn't be every single thing that you find important has to be what everyone else agrees on. And again, I'm telling you, as a church leadership, we just gave you our eight. That's it. That's as a church, we say this is what it is. And beyond that, I'm not going to debate you on those other ones. I, I, it doesn't matter to me whether or not we agree on all of those. I'll share my view and you can share your view and, and that's great. But that is how we build a different kind of church. I, I love the way that the author Bob Goff says it. He says, the way we love people we disagree with is the best evidence of what we really believe. So we can talk about all the theology that we have. Well, I believe this and my doctrine is this. That's great. How do you treat those that don't share that theology with you? How do you treat other Christians who don't agree with you on every little theological nuance that you have? How, how do you work that out? That tells me more about what you believe. And so we want to create a community where we can be close to people who are different than us. We can be close to people who disagree with us. We can be close to people who don't see things always the way that we see things because Jesus is the one uniting us together. Everything about the language that we use when we're talking about relationships. Imagine someone who, who you agree with, right? You might say things like, oh, that's a close friend of mine. It's proximity. You might tell an inside joke to that friend. You might have a circle of friends. This is the language we use because those who agree with us, we are, we are close to them in proximity. And by contrast, if you disagree with someone, notice the language we use. Oh, we've grown distant from one another. You might tell them to stop butting in or I need to pull back away from you or just give me some space. Right? Because what we're saying is if I disagree with you, I don't want to be as near you. This is what the world teaches us. As one professor of psychology said it. Love is inherently experienced as a boundary issue. You see, love is that thing where you go, if I agree with you and I'm going to love you, I have to be close to you. I can't say I love you and then run the other direction. That's loving from the sidelines. Loving in the game means I proactively move towards you even if I disagree with you, even if we're different. Because I'm going to love you. It does not mean I agree with you. It means I choose to love you. When it comes to loving others, proximity matters. But here's how this breaks down. I'm going to give you the easiest example of how this plays out. When you disagree with someone, you begin to pull away from them. Let me show you how you do it. Ever been on social media? Somebody posts something you don't like, what do you do? Unfriend them. Anybody ever been there? Oh, I just don't have to, I don't have to be a part of that anymore. I don't have to be around you anymore. What are we doing? We are removing ourselves from proximity to those we disagree with. 
And it's really easy to see how we do it online, but we do it in real life as well. We, we start avoiding people. We start pulling them back. We don't want to be around them. But here's the deal. If we're going to give ourselves to make the gospel good news for others, we have to be around others. We cannot be in this little holy huddle and go, the world's out there somewhere, and we're going we're gonna to lock arms together. We'll, we'll have you know, our defenses in here. No. we got to start learning how to love others in profound ways, proactively the way Jesus modeled it for us. And if we can't begin it with the church, what on earth makes us think we can love others outside this church? It has to begin here. As we go, you know what, you and I see some things differently, but I'm going to learn how to love you. I'm going to proactively do this. So here's the deal. I have some homework for each of you this week. If you want to, you want to take this seriously, here's my homework. This week, I want you to find someone in your life that you know that disagrees with you on something you find important. Okay? And some of you are going, know exactly who that is. You know, like that name is immediately coming to mind. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to invite them to explain to you in person, to explain to you why they believe what they believe on that topic. And here's the deal. You get to say nothing in return. No rebuttal. No, well, yeah, but. And you don't get to argue your point when you're done. You just listen. How would that go? You know what would happen if you started doing this? You would literally begin to notice in your body a response because you so badly want to justify, no, 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 that you're wrong. And, and just the process of going, I'm going to listen to you. I'm just going to listen. And here's the, here's the amazing part. You might learn something that you have no idea about. They might actually explain something. You go, huh, I've never even considered that point because I've been so quick to argue it. I've been so quick to come up with my response. I've never just sat there and listened. And here's the deal. There's no risk in this. If you disagree with them at the time you're done, the same way you began, great. You don't have to agree with them. Just learn how to listen longer than feels comfortable. Let me give you an example. You can practice this in little things. You can practice in big things. Last night, for the first time ever, uh, my wife and I went to our very first Portland Timbers game. Which is quite the experience if you've never been to a Timbers game, I've got to tell you. Uh, here's the deal. I'm from Arizona. There is no soccer team in Arizona. I've never been to a professional soccer game in my life, right? So I had no idea what to expect. I don't get it, you know, whatever. So I'm going with an open mind. I'm going to go experience something new. Now, the whole, I mean, it's, it's the most Portland experience I've had yet. It's very amazing if you've never been to a game. But for the actual soccer game, here's the deal. The score was 0-0 zero to zero at the end of the game. Now, I'm a baseball fan. Games don't end at 0-0. Zero, zero. Okay, like that's not a thing. You can't have that, right? And so literally the game ends after 90 minutes. And it's like, all right, everybody go home. And I'm confused. I'm like, what, what's happening right now? And they're like, that game's over. But nobody scored. Like no, nothing happened. They're like, yeah, that's the game. So like, what about overtime? Nope, they don't do overtime. What about like penalty kicks? No, they don't do penalty kicks. So we're just all going to go home after a bunch of dudes ran around the track for a while and did nothing to get the ball into the goal. Like, that's it? That's the game? They're like, yep, that's the game. That's soccer. I'm going back to baseball. I don't understand <laughs> soccer. I'm just saying. I love you guys. I'll go for the entertainment, not for the sport. I don't understand it. So literally, as I found myself, you know, in that moment, I, I said to my friend who was there, I said, please help me understand soccer. 
I don't get this. And so I said, explain to me, why is this the way it works? And, how, how, you know, and, and I'm trying to learn something I don't understand, and I'm not wired that way. And here's the reality. There are so many things that the people around us can teach us if we would just start listening. If we would just say, I don't have to be right, and you and I don't have to agree on every little point because we're not building a cult. So let's just learn how to grow together, and let's lock arms around the things that really matter, the essentials. And we can have other important beliefs, and we can learn from one another, but we don't have to divide over those things. Our goal as a church is to constantly be moving, constantly be growing. And, and God has given us an incredible resource in the people around us to do that. Now, let me close with this. I have this weird dream, desire, whatever, of the future. And I debated whether or not I should share this, but I'm going for it, all right? This is a weird thought. I'm going to prep you up now. It's a weird thought. So here's the thought I had, okay? Um, as you think about, I don't know, like 2020, things that might happen in that year. Uh, there's a presidential election coming. I don't know if you're aware of this. Coming in two years. Happens every, every so often. Uh, so there's this presidential election coming. I don't know how much you watched the last presidential election. Um, it was a little bit tense, if you remember. Now here's my question. Will the next presidential election, in your opinion, be more tense or less tense than the last one? Now, just for fun, if you think it's going to be less tense, less tension around it, uh, than the last time, raise your hand. Okay, all three of you, are these are optimists in the room. Be friends with these guys. They will cheer you up. Their life is just, I love it. <laughs> okay, guys, close your eyes for a second. Now, if you think it's going to get more tense, raise your hand. I'm with you, okay? Uh, yeah, so here's the deal. Would we say the tension last time was at a healthy level? No. It was like the worst I had ever seen of us as we treated one another, the way we talked to one another, the way we just spewed hatred and felt justified to do it. And I just remember watching this going, this is us at our worst, the way we are treating one another. Here's my, here's my, my desire. What if when that next benchmark comes around, and we all are predicting it's going to get more tense. What if it didn't happen here? What if in the midst of the cultural fighting and the isolation, what if we were focused on Jesus? What if we taught people how to be close to people they disagreed with? What if people found something that was life-giving in this community that they could not find anywhere else in the midst of the fighting and the polarization. What would God do in a community like that? I want to close with something that Dr. Martin Luther King said. It's an incredibly profound image. He said most people, and Christians in particular, are thermometers that record or register the temperature of majority opinion, not thermostats that transform and regulate the temperature of society. It's a profound image of this or that. And so church, let me ask you the question. As we look to the future, will we be this or this? Will we be the kind of community that is so infused with the spirit of God that we are literally setting the temperature of the culture around us, of the people around us? Because we say, this is how we're going to love you. This is how we're going to exist together. And we will proactively show this love, not from the sidelines. Or will we be just another sign? Yep, everybody hates each other. Yep, we're all polarized. Yep, we disagree. And it, will it be the same thing in here that it is out there? I can think of no greater test for us 
when things are getting more polarized by the day, that people learn how to love one another deeply and profoundly in the name of Jesus Christ. And we practice it here, and it emanates out of this place into every relationship of influence that God has placed in our path. What would God do with a church that learned how to be a thermostat like that, that learned how to proactively love others and do it, not just talk about it? I want to be a part of a community that God uses in that way. Let's pray together. Jesus, our desire is to be a thermostat, to be a transforming part of this culture, that we would practice something profound here that is not often found around us, that we would lock arms around the essentials of what it means for you to to have impacted our life and who you are, but we would not get hung up on all the things that so quickly divide us, that so quickly tear us apart, that we would learn how to listen to one another, to value one another, to proactively love even in the midst of disagreement and differences. God, would you profoundly use this culture, use this place, use these communities for your purposes. May we extend the kingdom of God in tangible ways as we love those around us, as we give ourselves, as we understand the gospel will cost us something because it costs you everything. God, may we follow you and in following you, may we love the way you have loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.